Um, before we get into the scriptures tonight, I'm sh- I just wanted to really quick talk and pray for one second. Um, that was an exaggeration of the shortness. We're going to pray for more than a second. But uh, I'm sure many of you guys, not unlike me, were you know deeply distraught and discouraged to read of yet another mass shooting that happened in the last few days. Uh, and I was thinking about it, you know, come before we arrived at Sunday, often when something happens in the country or in the world that has sort of ripple effects that, you know, laps throughout conversations and dispositions on throughout the week, we make space to talk about it and have space to process here on a Sunday. We'll read liturgy or we'll pray together or someone will leave a time, lead a time of meditation. And I honestly had the sense uh, ever so briefly that I was like, man, if we do this for every mass shooting, we'll have something, it feels like we'll have something every Sunday that we'll have to be like, hey, another one, hey, another one, hey, another one. And I was discouraged. And then I thought, you know what? We're going we're gonna to acknowledge it and talk about it anyway. Because part of the disposition as an apprentice of Jesus is kind of a, a resolute obstinance against evil and a, a partnering with Jesus in the pushing back of evil for the sake of being what Jesus called peacemakers. We just got through going through um, Jesus' manifesto for life in the kingdom of God when he talks about what it means to be a nonviolent apprentice of Jesus, someone who loves their enemies, who prays for those who persecute them, who turns the other cheek, never repays evil for evil. And we participate in that tradition as disciples of Jesus, people who commit to a nonviolent rabbi to love their enemies and do good. And that means that we pray for our enemies. We also, it also means that we mourn with those who are mourning. So if you guys don't mind, let's just spend a couple of minutes uh, in prayer before we get to the text. Jesus, even just talking about that for a moment, the, the reminder that you teach a, a nonviolent way of life, um, a peacemaking way of life, comes as a sobering challenge, I think. Even for those of us who, who, like myself, are often without the opportunity to practice nonviolence, um, I am rarely in any sort of violent situation, even the low-level kind, if ever. And yet, ours is a world that is fraught with violence on a worldwide scale, and often on a national scale, it feels like we are part of a uniquely violent country and a uniquely violent time and place. And we want to be committed to your way, and not just in the way that sits back and shakes our heads and says, man, that's awful, that's awful, but in a way that is committed to pray against violence, committed to do the work of peacemaking, which we believe is an active thing, not just a passive thing, that we would look for opportunities to push back evil by loving our enemies, that we would look for opportunities to stop the cycle of violence by absorbing it with peace and kindness, and that we would just be committed to pray for peace. That's what we do now, Jesus. We just pray that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, that you would hasten the day, so to speak, when we no longer have to lament mass shooting after mass shooting after mass shooting, that you would silence every voice of the enemy that speaks out and stewards and agitates violence in the world. That you would still every bullet and every gun and that you would bring peace. 
Come, Lord Jesus, come. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you guys for sitting with me. My name is Josh. If we haven't met, uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We at Van City, we're working our way through one first century biography of Jesus that is most often referred to simply as the Gospel of Matthew. So there's lots of work to do tonight. You guys up for it? Yep. Feeling sharp? Kenny, you good? Okay, good. He's like, oh my gosh, he called on me. Uh, so we've been in the midst of a series of stories in which Matthew, who's the author of this biography, first depicts Jesus as one who teaches with authority, what I was just talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. But then he immediately, Matthew sets to work stringing together a series of narratives that reveal Jesus as someone who is able to exemplify that authority as well. That is, he didn't just teach like he had authority, he lived as though he had authority. But before we move on and get more further into this concept of Jesus and his authority, let's take a step back and work with that word authority. Now, it stands to reason we all have different sorts of images and sensations and memories that sort of involuntarily flicker in our mind's eye, even at the mention of the word authority. You know, in the post-Christian culture of America, for religious leaders or pastors or whatever you want to call them to talk about having or even recognizing authority is sort of like uh, akin to wearing a Nickelback t-shirt. You know, it's like one of the least popular things that you can do. It paints a target on you and everyone thinks you're lame the moment that you do it. No offense if you wear a Nickelback t-shirt, really at all. Um, and you know, everyone talks like Nickelback's just the worst thing that ever happens. It's like, I've definitely heard worse. You know what I'm saying? I've certainly heard worse. Uh, anyway, that's a whole nother thing. We can get into that later. I'm not saying it's not bad. I've just heard worse. Uh, once, I sat down with an individual uh, to have this lighthearted conversation about what it means to be a part of the leadership here at Fan City. And in describing said scenario, I used the words um, submitted to authority at one point or another. I wasn't talking about me. I was talking about what I do with a team of other leaders. And I said something about being submitted to authority. And I watched this person's hackles began to rise. They became immediately defensive. They're hostile, venomous even. And they even at one point said, do not use those words with me. And while that person claimed to, and I'm sure legitimately did, suffer mistreatment at the hands of authority at some point or another, they had done away with that paradigm altogether to the point where it was no longer eligible even for discussion. But it's not like we've become suspicious of religious institutions only. We are living in an era of scandals which seem to bleed from the near-bursting walls of powerful secrecy. So you've got satanic police brutality caught on camera, often without repercussions for the officers involved, more and more powerful men being exposed on a regular basis as serial predators and rapists and abusers of women, politicians who are accused and frequently exposed of illegal activity and devious dealings. Is there any wonder that we are allergic to the word authority? And all that comes as an additional challenge for those of us who are already wired to antagonize authority. So as, as far as I can remember, as long as I can remember, I felt this extreme disdain for anything that I perceived to be attempted control of my autonomy. It's not a good thing, um, but there it is. The, and this is often especially the case I've learned when we were going back through the Discovering Your Identity and Calling. Those who identify uh, with the number four in the Enneagram uh, are often wired this way, apparently. And it's not all bad. If you're like me, it can be beneficial at times to have not only a, a willingness but an eagerness 
to sort of subvert the status quo, but of course it, it also poses a tremendous challenge for those of us who call ourselves apprentices of Jesus, because in an apprentice-teacher relationship, the teacher is the master, the teacher is the authority, and the apprentice submits to that authority. And Jesus certainly makes extravagantly bold claims to authority. He does so in ways that, uh, that in the way that He taught, the way that He talked, uh, by simply saying so, I have authority, and He does so by the types of things He did. But then that begs the question, what kind of authority did Jesus have exactly? Because that's an ambiguous term as well. Is it the kind of authority that just sits back and tells the less powerful what to do? Is it the kind of authority that's above the law to, you know, he gets to do what he'd like and he gets to do so without consequence? Is it the kind of authority that afforded him comfortable distance to impose his will? Or is it something else altogether? Now, let's finally read from Matthew chapter 8, beginning with the 23rd verse. The story goes, Then Jesus got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up, rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the uh, Gadarenes, the two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from him, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. Jesus said to them, go. So they came out, went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, they told on Jesus, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. So if you're reading along through Matthew's biography, you're thinking, whoa, things are getting nuts. This story is so weird. So let, let's reset Go back to the beginning and work through the text line by line. You guys still ready? Feeling sharp? Still good? Great. Thanks, Kristen. I appreciate that extra vote of confidence. So this pair of stories begins in Matthew 8, verse 23, with the line, Then he, Jesus, got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Now, if you've been around for just about any of our work studying this first century biography of Jesus, it should come as no surprise by now to hear me say, Matthew is up to something with this line. See, this guy is no slouch when it comes to literary sophistication. If you think back to the text just before this one, if you remember the story, Jesus is approached by two individuals who seem on the surface prepared or interested in following him, and yet Jesus dissuades them. One fellow says, hey, listen, I'll go wherever it is that you're headed. And Jesus essentially replies by saying, are you sure? Have you thought about what that would be like? You have no idea how costly it will become. Another guy comes up and says, listen, I'll follow you, but I need to be with my dad first. And Jesus says, listen, any reason that you have to put off discipleship is tantamount to death. And you're just thinking, good grief, man, sheesh. And from there, the narrative immediately shifts back into action with these words. Then Jesus got into the boat and his disciples followed him. 
Matthew is again drawing a dichotomy between those who are willing to follow Jesus and those who are not. And the text goes on, verse 24, suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. I love that. Jesus is asleep. Apparently, he's uh, not a light sleeper. He is, after all, human, so it makes sense. Verse 25, the disciples went and woke him up. They have to wake him up in the scene. And they say, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Now, in Greek, the plea of the disciples is actually far more manic and desperate. It's just three words, kiri, Sozo Apollome, which is Lord, save, dying. So I imagine this would be a bit like a small child who wakes in the, you know, in the throes of a terrible storm only to find their parents are asleep. You know, it feels too vulnerable. It feels dangerous. Uh, a while back, my son, who's four, he woke in the middle of the night. He sometimes does. It's a thing, apparently. Spoiler alert if you want to have kids. It's part of it. He wakes up in the middle of the night, he's like, Dad, ah, from his bedroom. So I'm stumbling through the darkness into his room, and, and I find him crying in his bed, and I deduce that he's had a nightmare the more that he talks. So I just sort of reflexively ask, what was it? Um, not thinking about what, if that's a good idea or a bad idea. And he immediately launches into explaining the nightmare, and he goes, there was a weird goat, and it looked like a man, and it yelled at me, no. And so now I'm terrified. <laughs> And I'm trying to play it cool. I'm like, oh, man, it's all right. Hey, let's turn on some of these lights around here, man. It's so dark in your room. <laughs> and, and then I'm telling Abby about it later, and she's like, holy crap, that's horrifying. Now, when you're a kid, that's what you do. You wake up scared. You wake your dang parents up. They shouldn't be sleeping on the job. Aren't, aren't they in charge after all? So the text goes on, verse 26. He says to them when they wake him up, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? One scholar I read this week translated Jesus' words as, why are you being such cowards, you little faiths? Like it's a name that he calls them. He went on to write this, there is something moral about faith. It is often a form of courage, and its absence, cowardice. We learn that faith is not simply a passive acceptance of truths, meaning you believe something, a weak resignation that just believes. Faith is often depicted in the Gospels as a courageous confidence that Jesus is equal to the occasion. But why? You know, why the name-calling, Jesus? Isn't it appropriate to get scared if your little boat is, you know, in the throes of a furious storm? But remember, as usual, Matthew is up to something. These interlocked stories are about Jesus' claims to and demonstrations of authority. Jesus' expectation for his disciples, those on the inside, is that their confidence in his authority remain proportionate to the actual extent of his authority, meaning they should believe that he is, has the authority that he claims to have and demonstrates having. Here, by default, the disciples do not. So what happens next? Verse 26 goes on. Then he got up, Jesus, and he rebuked the wind and the waves themselves, and it was completely calm. And notice... Though Jesus rebukes the disciples for their lack of faith, he says, you know, why are you so afraid? He still gets up and he still rescues them from the storm. He doesn't shrug and he doesn't say, God's in control. We'll see what happens. He doesn't shake his head and say, that's pathetic. Why don't you come back and ask me again when you have more faith? Faith matters for sure. Otherwise, Jesus, I'm assuming, wouldn't have brought it up. But Jesus is prepared to act when we approach him. Be our faith incredible or so minuscule that we're terrified. 
And it seems like semantics, I know, but Jesus doesn't accuse them of having no faith. It's just that their faith hasn't matured to full confidence in Jesus' authority. After all, they do wake Jesus up. You know, they, they go to him. They don't just wake him up and say, farewell, Jesus, drowning is imminent. You know, this has been good. They, they must be anticipating that he could act, and then he does. They were right. And the disciples are, once again, in awe of his authority. Look at verse 27. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Is he standing right there when they say, what kind of dude is this? Even the wind and the waves do what he says. Now think about this. Matthew has been walking us through story after story detailing Jesus' miracles as a revelation of Jesus' authority. He's been healing outsiders, doing incredible stuff so that people line up and they want in. And then when they do, he asks them to count the cost. But his true disciples, on the other hand, they follow him. They get in the boat and follow him. And then the storm breaks out and even they lose heart and become discouraged. Matthew's story is about something that really happened, for sure, but he uses it to symbolize a much bigger issue. Matthew's lake is life itself. Matthew's boat is the journey of discipleship, and Matthew's storm is the inevitability of hardship along the way. But wait, it goes even deeper than that. See, in ancient Jewish thinking, the waters, the sea, even the lake were a symbol of not only chaos, but of the very real forces of evil that are alive and at work in God's broken creation. Bible scholar N.T. Wright summarizes my point by saying this, the sea remained in Jewish writing a place and a power of darkness and evil, threatening and wild. Sometimes the sea appears as the primal element, the dark substance out of which, and in opposition to which, the Creator God makes His beautiful world, winning a victory over the sea and all it stands for. But this is more than ancient Near Eastern symbolism. symbolism. Jesus actually did calm a storm, we believe. And Matthew uses a specific word to describe what Jesus does to the wind and the waves, which is what? What's that? Rebuked, right. He rebukes them. In Greek, the word is epitimao. It's a word that shows up many times throughout the Gospels, many of which are used to describe Jesus rebuking evil spirits. Here's just a few among very many. Jesus rebuked the demon in Matthew 17, same exact word, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. In Luke 9, even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him into the ground in a convulsion, but Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. Later in Luke's, or earlier in Luke's gospel, moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God, but Jesus rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Here's one more. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. So why does Jesus use the same word against, in this case, wind and waves? Because the water is the symbolic thing, and he knew that someone would write it down, and that we'd be reading it later, and we'd be like, oh, wow, an ancient Near Eastern thinking. Well, no, it's actually more than that. This has to do with an issue in theology called natural evil. And we don't have time for an in-depth study on the topic, but in simplest terms, this is based on the idea that spiritual beings have the ability to interact with and to affect matter, 
essentially, meaning spiritual beings can and often do interact with the physical world. This shows up all throughout the scriptures in which spiritual beings that the Bible refers to as angels or demons or even gods with a lowercase g are able to make human beings uh, diseased or infirmed in one way or another, in some cases even killing them. And as much of a stretch as this is on the modern post-enlightenment sensibility, it's interesting to me that for even those of us who will concede that, we're like, yeah, you know, we believe in evil spirits, we believe in the supernatural realm, we believe they, they can do stuff to people from time to time. Somehow we want to stop short of allowing Satan interaction with nature. And don't get me wrong, I don't think that every rain squall or twister is necessarily a plague from the devil, but demons can and do, in the story of the scriptures, tamper with nature, meaning hurricanes and earthquakes and tsunamis and volcanoes that kill people can often be energized by evil spirits, forces of darkness in the world. And if you're wondering, well, wait, can't we explain all of that scientifically with weather patterns and global warning and tectonic plates? Yes, absolutely we can. We're big fans of science here at Van City, no science phobia here. Uh, in the worldview of the scriptures, even the natural order itself is, to some extent, cursed, or, or if you like this word better, broken, meaning God intended a good world that would be free of suffering but we nonetheless find ourselves in a world of tornadoes and famine and avalanches. So all natural disasters are at least indirectly a product of the entropy of what we call the fall. And some of those things, I would argue, may even be directly demonically charged. This is why Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves as if they were personified. This is the reason he talks to a storm the same exact way he talks to a demon. Jesus is, again, demonstrating his authority over evil, even natural evil, and the sea, so to speak. And again, the disciples are in awe, which is, by the way, one reason the New Testament continues to be the source of ongoing debate amidst uh, historians, even historians who doubt the credibility of the supernatural accounts in the New Testament, because there's a big problem here. If you're a disciple, you're writing a biography in which you yourself, not to mention your closest friends, are all major characters, why in the world would you depict yourself as such a blundering, thick-headed, faithless apprentice? You know, ordinarily when one writes themselves into history, they massage details to make themselves the hero, not the failure, especially if the only thing they have to gain for writing this is potential persecution, violent persecution at that. And remember, this comes right after a story of two would-be disciples that probably couldn't hack it. Then here, Jesus' inside group, the ones who follow him into the boat and onto the lake, all of them turn out to be cowards as well. Again, this from scholar Dale Bruner. For the first time, we see the disciples in action, and the picture is not very pretty. The first disciple to be is self-centered, the second is comfort-loving, and in the storm, the whole band of disciples is cowardly. The story is passed on by these disciples because they want to encourage subsequent disciples to place their confidence in a Lord whose measure of help is not the measure of a disciple's worthiness, but the measure of the Lord's grace. And of course, the story doesn't end there. It goes on in Matthew 8, verse 28. When he arrived at the other side, in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. So, in the story, we've covered the physically ill, 
natural evil, demonic oppression, and what seems to be like even mental illness are all entering the picture as well. And again, this is Matthew artfully expanding the scope of Jesus' power and authority. See, geographically, the other side of the lake in this story was pagan territory. So it comes as no surprise that Matthew populates this piece of the story with things unclean to what we think was primarily a Jewish readership for Matthew's gospel. So you've got pagans, uh, Gentiles, you've got demons, and now you've got pigs, (laughs) unclean animals and food. Now, are these men in the story, the demon-possessed men, are they actually oppressed by autonomous evil forces, or are they suffering some kind of psychosis? Well, uh, maybe by now you can guess I'm about to argue for a dimension of both things in coexistence. See, in the same way that the natural order has been affected by the decisions of both human and angelic beings, our own bodies are caught in a similar and disastrous entropy as a result of our own freedom. And what I mean is that in the scriptures, the world is essentially broken as a result of evil. Evil finds its source in an entity the scriptures call Hasatan, or the Satan, and and in his minions. He has beings at his disposal. Because of the evil brokenness of the world, as a result of this being called the Satan, we get sick. This is affirmed by Jesus several times. I think of one particular story in Luke's gospel when he heals a woman who has a crooked spine on the Sabbath day. Jesus' critics get super ticked about it, and Jesus defends himself. So the story goes like this. On a Sabbath day, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. The story goes on. She's got a crooked back. Jesus heals her. His critics are really mad because you're supposed to rest on the Sabbath, not heal people. And Jesus defends himself by saying, should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? So what I'm getting at is that in this sense, mental mental illness is, as is all sickness, suffering, and death, in the broadest sense, demonic. This doesn't mean that an ill person has done anything wrong any more than a person with a cold or cancer has done anything wrong. And this doesn't necessarily mean that every single bout of mental illness or physical illness is directly and personally energized by some specific demon, though I do believe sometimes that may be the case. But the question really is, what about Jesus? Was Jesus simply treating this case of what he knew was mental illness as a bout of demonic oppression for the sake of his time and his culture because he knew they didn't know any better, so he just talked this way? Or did Jesus know something different? Is this what Jesus actually thought? Did he actually believe in demons? Was he mistaken on either presumption? Again, I think Bruner says it well when he writes this. It's not good theology to say Jesus knowingly accommodated himself to his contemporaries' inadequate views when he spoke of demons. Nor is it good theology to say that while Jesus spoke of demons, he actually knew they did not exist. To say such things is more psychological wish projection than scientific analysis of the text. As one reads the record, one discovers that Jesus believed in the existence of the demonic. This does not mean that we must call things by the same names. It does mean that there are probably more forces at work in history and consciousness than we know. So herein lies our modern dilemma. In the ancient world, there were no medical terms to describe things like schizophrenia or certain addictions and compulsions and on down the list. So in the ancient world, 
Um, let's just take me for an example. A guy with attention deficit disorder, I would be treated def- differently. I'd be in my village and someone would say, hey, Josh, go out and get a fish. Or what, you know, Josh, go out and get a fish. And uh, on the walk, uh, I'd notice a rock shaped like a horse or something. And I'd think to myself, man, horses are weird. Have you seen their teeth? They're so bizarre. And then I'd be like, I should find out more about a horse's teeth. And I'd go, you know, find the local horse owner and say, like, can I see your horse's teeth? And then I'd see his teeth and they'd be like, oh, those are disgusting. I need to clean my own teeth. So then I got to go in someone's house to find water. And then hours later, I return to my own hut. I've got no fish. I've got a story about horse teeth. And uh, I've somehow lost my tunic in the process. And I have no idea when I took it off or set it anywhere. And that's probably just gone. And they would say to me, you're possessed by a demon, sir. Um, I'm, I'm sure that's how Abby feels sometimes. Is that accurate description of life? <laughs> um, the point is, when faced with disorders of the mind or mental illness or compulsions and so on, ancient peoples tend to chalk things up to demons. Uh, English theologian, theologian G.B. Caird writes this, Ancient opinion ascribed to demon possession any disease which involved loss of control. So epilepsy, delirium, convulsions, nervous disorders, mental derangement, and which therefore suggested the presence of an invading power. Modern science can provide other explanations for most of the symptoms, but this does not mean that demon possession can be dismissed as outmoded science. To Jesus, all diseases were caused by Satan though not all by possession, so that with each of his cures, he was driving further back the frontiers of Satan's dominion. All that to say, here we have two men who are being oppressed by demons, either in the specific sense or the broad sense, however you want to look at it. And the story goes on, Matthew 8, verse 29. They say to Jesus, what do you want with us, son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? So notice the evil spirit speaking through the sick person recognized Jesus for who he really is. This is an identity that is yet to be disclosed to everyone around Jesus at the time. And they ask him this really weird question about torture. Now there's two pervading theories here among scholars. It could be that the demon is referring to a concept called judgment when on a day in the future, destruction awaits Satan and his evil forces. And that's what he's talking about. Or it could be uh, that given that this is pagan territory and this is a pagan person or pagan people that are demon-possessed, it could be that the demon is recognizing that Jesus has a commitment and a priority to the Jewish people first and that what will become the ministry to the non-Jewish people, which begins later, has not yet begun. And thus, Jesus shouldn't even be here yet picking a fight with a Gentile. In either event, the Spirit knows who Jesus is, and it knows what Jesus is up to in the, in the long-term sense, really. And it goes on, verse 30. Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. Now notice Matthew makes no mention of a reply from Jesus, which seems awesome to me. So he's like, what do you want with us? What are you doing here, son of God? You come here to torture us? And Jesus just stands there. And then the demon gets terrified, probably from Jesus' stark silence, and uh, it speaks up and begins to beg to be sent uh, from into some pigs, knowing that it's going to get sent out, presumably. So it refers to itself in the plural and asks for permission to go into some nearby pigs, which is really weird. And Jesus casts the demons out in a manner that's consistent with what Matthew has already established just a few texts prior in Jesus' power over the evil uh, powers in the, of darkness in the spiritual realm, which is with a word. 32, verse 32 says, Jesus said to them, go, 
So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake, died in the water. Those tending the pigs who saw this went into town, reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. So this is uh, one bonkers story, sure. But Matthew's also painting a picture of what it looks like for Jesus to exercise the authority he has at his disposal. So when Jesus exercises his authority, evil is terrified. It flees before him. When Jesus exercises his authority, all that is evil and unclean is destroyed in order to set free those who are held in captivity by Satan. Now, before this story, Matthew painted a portrait of people drawn to Jesus for his authority, demonstrated in his miracle-working power, crowds amassed to get healed by Jesus. People line up and say, hey, maybe I could follow you. But here in this story, the onlookers aren't into it at all. To Matthew's Jewish readers, this story would be awesome. Jesus demonstrates his authority to drive out demons and send them into a herd of unclean animals on top of that so that they get destroyed in the water. That makes perfect sense. But in pagan territory, it's like, who the heck is this guy? And why in the world did he just make our livelihood run off a cliff and into the water? So they walk up and they're like, excuse me, Mr. Jewish magician, could you please go home and not do any more of this around us? And not unlike the timid would-be disciples and and the terrified apostles in the boat, we, the readers, are meant to see a bit of ourselves in these worried pagans as well. Jesus' authority is clearly to us, as we read the story, a good thing, and yet it becomes increasingly difficult to accept. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas writes this, if we choose between a life we know, even a life possessed by demons and ruled by death, and a life of uncertainty to which Jesus calls us, a life that may well expose us to dangers in Jesus' name, we too may ask Jesus to leave our neighborhood, the habits of the world are hard to break. Everywhere Jesus goes, he manages to disrupt the status quo. Isn't that the case now as much as it has ever been? Jesus is relentlessly punk rock. He's as magnetic as he is divisive. He's as interesting as he is subversive. He is as appealing as he is scary. Everywhere Jesus goes, he causes a stir, and he divides the people he meets into two specific categories, the crowds and a much smaller minority who become disciples. And there are actually more miracles to come in the narrative that we'll see as we go, but the motif is becoming quite clear. Jesus is up to good stuff. He's breaking down barriers to meet outsiders and bring them into God's kingdom. He's healing the sick. He's silencing evil. He's casting out demons. He's setting free those who are held in bondage by Satan. And there are those who approach him with some level of caution. They're saying, maybe I could if, and Jesus seems to shake his head and say, you're not ready. And other people bear witness to the awesome authority and miracle working power of Jesus, and they want him to leave right away. They're like, man, get out of here. I don't want any more of this around me. And that, that made me think, you know, I remember once sitting with a young man who is deeply conflicted, tremendous amount of existential conflict about where he stood with God and Jesus. He had no idea what to think. And I was at a loss for words, frankly, so I just kind of shrugged and said, uh, why don't we just ask God to say something to you right now? And the guy became immediately sort of rigid and panicked, and he said, uh, how exactly? How are we going to ask God? 
And so I described a really simple, very unspectacular approach to what we call listening prayer. We do it every single week. And I said, you know, we'll just ask God a question out loud, and then you and I will sit here in the silence, and we'll see if he answers us by bringing something into our mind. Um, And the guy panicked immediately. He said, no, 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 no. hang on, hang on. I I don't want to do that. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And I was kind of taken aback because the stakes seemed really low to me. I was like, what's the big deal? All we're doing is listening. But clearly, he was afraid. So I asked, like, what are you afraid of? And he said, I'm afraid of what God might say. And of course, you know, I thought, well, many, if not most of us, struggle with inaccurate pictures of God, at least from time to time. We tend to imagine him to be, you know, a disappointed dad or an unhappy manager or a cruel and perpetually scowling taskmaster. And I could be wrong, but I'm not convinced that that was what was going on in this instance with this young man. To be sure, this guy was afraid to hear from God. He said as much, but I don't believe it was because he thought God would be unkind to him. I think that, like these pig herders in the story, like the would-be disciples in the story, he was afraid to hear what he already suspected to be true, which was that God would say something, and he was going to ask a lot. He was going to say, follow me. And are you and I, those who have signed up, that is, or who have begun to walk the narrow road of discipleship, are we really so different? Aren't we like those shivering young men in that shaken boat? At least I know I am. In the, in the tragedy, in the depression or the anxiety or the season when God seems distant or altogether silent, when the funds run low or when the job falls through or when the cancer spreads or when the marriage ends, it's us shaking Jesus awake, saying, Lord, save, dying. And ordinarily, it's honestly not the best idea to force allegories into the Bible. And I'm sure you guys know the kind I'm beating up on. You know, someone (laughs) reads the story of like David and Goliath, and then they say, so what I'm getting at is what are the giants in your life in need of being slayed? And, you know, I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm pretty sure that that weird story about a kid carrying around a severed head has nothing to do with your life issues in 2018. I could be wrong. Um, But there are times in which the authors of Scripture invite the readers to see themselves in the story, to see their own lives in the lives of the Bible's characters. And many scholars agree that, as we've mentioned earlier, Matthew probably intended this story, which is about an actual event, to also represent something more. The lake as our lives, the boat as our vessel of discipleship, and the storm as the chaos and evil of life and the world. So to end the teaching tonight, I want to invite you guys into an exercise that uh, we call imaginative prayer, which is something that we've done in the practices and something we've done here in the gathering before, but I'll walk you through it, so don't be panicked or anything. This is simply a way of talking to God, utilizing your God-given ability to evoke images while you think, which is essentially just your imagination. So do me a favor, if you don't mind, and you know, clear off your lap or get comfortable Uh, enough to kind of sit there and think for a bit and pray and listen for a bit. If you want to close your eyes, if that helps you focus, go for that. If if it helps you to keep your eyes open, it really doesn't matter either way. Um, But just kind of relax, make yourself comfortable, and and do me a favor and be as open-minded as you'd like to be. If you're not into this and it makes you uncomfortable and you don't want to try it, you don't have to. Just sit back and listen to the show, I guess. Otherwise, Just follow along with me the best that you can. I'm going to invite the Spirit to come and speak and to guide our time of imaginative prayer. Holy Spirit, the helper, 
the advocate, the spirit of Jesus. In the same way that you have access to our minds to reveal the truth of Scripture, to guide us into conviction, to let us know what God thinks about a given thing, would you come right now and steer our imagination the way that you would like it to go? We don't think that you're going to seize autonomy of our bodies and puppeteer us so that we have no choice, but we do believe that you want to talk, that you want to be heard. So we are inviting you, all, everyone in here that's willing to be a part of the practice, the exercise we're about to do, we are inviting you to come and speak into our mind's eye, into our imagination with vivid pictures and senses so that we can hear what it is that you'd like to say. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the story that we just read, just the section about Jesus calming the storm over you guys. And as we read, I'm going to give you guys just a few prompts to imagine yourself in that story. And this is totally fine to do. We're not doing something wacky. Remember, most scholars agree that this is something that you're supposed to do, kind of see yourself in the story. And this is really an ancient, time-honored way of doing that, to utilize your imagination to understand better what the text has to say and what God is saying to you through the text. So the text begins, Then Jesus got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. So imagine yourself on the shore of a lake. It's dusk. The air is cooling off. You can smell the water. The sand is beneath your feet. There's crowds that have begun to disperse. And I want you to imagine as best as you can Jesus himself stepping into a boat in front of you. And your friends are around you. Jesus is leading the way. This is a man to whom you are drawn with deep admiration and passion for his words, his way of life. If he's getting in the boat, you're getting in the boat. You are his disciple. You are eager to follow. Jesus, your teacher, your master, he says, come on, we're going over here to the other side of the lake. And just imagine yourself stepping into a boat with your friends, a small boat that would accommodate some 13 people or so. And the boat sets off into the water. Go out into the water. There's a sensation of a boat rocking calmly. And the rain starts. First is a drizzle, and then it starts to come down faster. The sun is set now. It's dark. The rain starts to beat down against the boat. And the text says, suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waters swept over the boat. So imagine now the horrifying turbulence. You're in this small boat. It's rocking back and forth. It's taking on water at a horrifying rate. You're being splashed. Your whole person is soaked through and through. It's dark. And you're not ignorant to the way of life of fishermen, of people who go out on the water. People die like this. The boat could get turned over. There's no one to save you. And all of you drown out there in the lake in the dark with no one to hear you. You're terrified. Now, I want you in that picture to just for a moment take yourself into your own life right here, right now, in 2018 on a Sunday evening in Vancouver, and imagine for a moment what it is that best represents the storm for you. Something that you're going through, big or small, whatever it is that for you is that storm shaking the boat, a crisis of faith, a loved one who's struggling with faith, a sickness, 
watching someone that you love be sick, life plans that have fallen through or that are unstable, whatever it is for you that most embodies that storm, bring that to your mind. And then again, imagine yourself on the boat. And that, that storm for you in your life is the thing that's going to flip this boat over and make you drown. And you are terrified. To the degree that you're like, this is it. This could be it. This thing goes over. I have no hope, no recourse. I don't know what I'll do. We are going to drown. The story goes on. It says, Jesus was sleeping. And the disciples went and woke him up. So you're on this boat. You're with your friends, terrified for your life. Seems like the boat could flip over at any moment. And this man with whom you're enamored, who you followed into this thing, is sleeping. You gather around him, soaked to the bone, shivering, terrified, and you shake him awake. And now I want you to imagine what it is that you would say to Jesus, knowing what that storm is for you and your life. Right now, pray to Jesus what you would say to wake him up with the storm all around you. What do you want to say to him? Just think about that for a second. You know, we have a tendency to read into Jesus a very stern, even angry disposition. It's been makes sense. Sometimes he comes across as a bit strong from story to story. But when you put together the whole of the story of Jesus' life, he is easily depicted as someone who is kind and gentle and patient, even with his slow faith disciples, even with the little faiths. So again, imagine yourself there in the turbulence, in that storm, the storm that is your life right now, that thing for you. The boat's about to flip. You wake up, Jesus. You've said to him what you wanted to say. And now, Holy Spirit, would you come and speak? What is it that you would have Jesus say to us in the storm on the boat? Just wait and listen. Maybe a phrase pops up, a scripture, an image. It's not necessarily definitely from God, but I want you guys to just wait and listen for a second. Entertain the possibility that it could be what God wants to say to you right now in the midst of the storm. As you wake Jesus up in the storm and you say, Lord, save us. We are going to drown. What does Jesus say back? Let's wait and listen for just a moment. seamlessly out of that exercise, we're going to respond to Jesus and to his spirit with worship by singing songs. If you're still listening, keep listening. When you're ready, stand and sing together as a response to Jesus who rebukes the wind and the waves and calms the storm.